Well, I think that when we're really honest and transparent with God and with ourselves and, uh, and then with each other, uh, we have to admit that there are at least times in our lives where we who believe in Jesus look at the lives of those who do not believe in Jesus, and, uh, and at least in some aspects, we kind of think to ourselves, my goodness, you know, why can't my life look like that? And I think that's particularly true for those of us who understand the sovereignty of God. I mean, we Presbyterians sort of get that. We understand that God has ordained this universe. He's ordained this life. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, to use the fancy and yet really, really amazing language of our confession. And so we look at the lives of some of these other people and we start thinking, if not actually saying things like, God, why would you give health to that person and you wouldn't give it to me? Why would you give a good marriage, a satisfying marriage to that person and not to me? Why would you give industrious children to that person and not to me? Or why would you just give children to that person and not to me? And on and on and on the list goes. But I think the most frequent, if not the most poignant thing, that we envy in other people is financial. And I think oftentimes we look at some of these other people and we go, now, why would you ordain a universe, a life, a world in which that person would prosper and not me? And by that person, I don't just mean the kind of person who makes it big, if you will, by doing all the right things, you know? I mean, they're living out the American dream and good old-fashioned ingenuity and hard work and creativity and all that stuff. We admire those things in other people as folks whose souls have been formed in the capitalistic society in which most of us at least were raised. We look at that and say... Wow. And you know what? It's a wow. But I think oftentimes we value it and admire it too much. I think oftentimes, and this is a little off point, but not far, oftentimes we value that above the mission and the kingdom of God. But I'm not talking about those people who do it all ethically. I'm talking about people who do it, well, frankly, not ethically. I think oftentimes we look at these guys who lie and cheat and steal and step on anyone and everyone they have to, oftentimes God's people, oftentimes me, oftentimes all the way to the so-called top, and then who get away with it, or at least seem to. That causes us to have feelings, doesn't it? That when we're really transparent or not all that attractive. It causes us to envy. It causes us to resent. It causes us, in some cases, can we be real honest, to kind of hate and even then to put up our fists and to fight against the very people that God, for his eternal glory, for the building of his kingdom, calls us in humility to come to in love, to serve, to become objects of our compassion and mercy, and to share life with, to take the glories of Christ to. And that's what the psalmist is going to challenge us with today. He's going to come to us, and he's going to challenge us mostly with those kind of people. And he's going to ask us to be transparent. In fact, he's not going to have to. He's going to unmask us. He's going to unmask us and talk to us about our hearts how we feel, which, by the way, spills directly into and dictates what we then do and how we then respond. 
And Psalm 49 starts with a superscription. It's so cool. It says, for the choir director. And I know you're thinking, why is that so cool? It's just this little introductory statement. What's the big deal? It's for the choir director. We don't even know what the music was. But there was music, by the way. That's that little word, selah, that we take out. It's some kind of a musical interlude or pause or crescendo. or something. It's some kind of a direction to the choir director that I find distracting. So I take it out by the choir director thousands of years ago. God, I mean, this is music that he's writing here. He says, for the choir director, he's telling you, look, here's the thing. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to bring you wisdom on this topic, and the wisdom is so great that it should cause you to worship. Don't miss that. There's something of wonder and of, and of marvel in this that should inspire us. It's not just informational. It's inspirational, and as Ryan pointed out to me between the services, it's music, and music is written for the ear, not for the eye. And he's going to contrast this message that you will hear with your ear with so many of the things that we see and are tempted to pursue and chase after and pour out our lives in favor of. And oh, by the way, envy and resent and hate the people that we're called to love and serve, that we're called to share life with. So he says for the choir director, and then he says a psalm of the sons of Korah, and then he starts... He says this in verse 1. He says, hear this, but, but who is he talking to? Please don't miss this. All peoples. And then he says, give ear. So he's crying out to be heard. But again, by who? All the inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. He's saying, guys, I have a message. And it's not just for the believers in Jesus. It's for everybody. All people, all the inhabitants of the world. And the word world that he chooses is a rare Hebrew word. And it means this transient world. It means this world that is passing away. He is coming to us with a message of wisdom that should inspire within our hearts worship and awe and marvel and humility and love and mercy and compassion and grace and gospel. And he starts with this world in which we live. And he says, first thing you need to know, it's passing away. It's transient. And so then also is everything in it. It's giving way to an eternal world, to a better place. He says, hear this, all peoples, give ear, all of the inhabitants of this transient world, both low and high, rich and poor, together, he says, for my mouth will speak wisdom. It will tell you how things really are because he already knows how things appear. So he's been there. He's coming to us in a psalm and going, look, 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 I know how it looks. I know how it appears. I know how it seems. But here's how it really is. And as a result of how it really is, this is how you really ought to feel. And this is what you really ought to do. It's how you ought to respond. He says, from my mouth will speak wisdom. It's going to tell you how things really are. And the meditation of my heart will be understanding. It will give you insight into this riddle of life in which we are often tempted to resent or, or, or to oppose or to whatever the people we're called to love. The people were called to serve. The people were called to share life with, the life of Christ with. And so he says in verse 4, I will incline my ear to a proverb, meaning to a simple illustration or analogy that teaches a basic truth about life. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Hear it with your ears and contrast it with what you see. He's coming to us and he's saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something about the riddle of life and I'm going to do it through a riddle of my own. 
And I'm going to do it in such a way that if you really get it, it inspires you to worship. And then he begins his riddle, and he really divides it into two parts, the rest of this psalm. Eight verses each, and at the end of each one of those sections, you have the proverb. And it's essentially the same proverb at the end of each section. He starts here in verse 5. He says, why should I fear in the days of adversity when the, when the iniquity of my foes, keyword surrounds me? And the foes here means those who are seeking to supplant him. It's those who are seeking to take advantage of, them, of him for their own advantage. He's saying, why should I fear them? And in a second, you're going to see that he's talking about people who would take advantage of him for monetary gain or maybe for power or for prestige or for whatever. The people who lie and cheat and steal their way all the way to the so-called top and again, who seem to get away with it. He says, why should I fear those kinds of people in the days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes, those who would take advantage of me surrounds me? He's hemmed in, yet he's not fearful. And then he describes them. And in the description, you begin to understand why. Why should he not be fearful? Why should he not be envious? Why should we not be envious? Why should we be enabled instead to love? Listen to the description. He says, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. He says, I shouldn't fear them. I shouldn't envy them. I should be able to pity and to love and to have compassion to them. Why? Because no man can by any means, meaning by means of wealth, redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of the soul, he reminds us, is costly. In fact, it's far more costly than all of the resources, all of the wealth, all the stuff that this transient, key word, world can produce. Our currency has no value with the true and the living God in terms of the redemption or the purchase of our souls. He says the redemption of the soul is costly, and he, this person who trusts in his wealth, should cut it out. He should cease trying or trusting in his wealth forever that he should live on eternally that he should not undergo decay. What he's saying is, look, why should I fear or envy a man whose wealth is limited solely to this world and whose little g, O-D, God of money, of wealth, of riches, or you can add other things to the equation, power, prestige, whatever, is destined to fail him when he needs it most. When he stands before the true God, big G, O-D, in judgment. It's a pretty stark message, isn't it? We're just getting going. Hang on. Guys, this is not just a message for believers. It's a message for unbelievers. It's a message for all of us who trust in anything, be it wealth or whatever, other than the living God in worship and serve it. He's saying pitiful is the man who pours out his whole life in favor of a God who fails him in the end. He says, no man, including those whom we are often tempted to envy and then even worse, can by any means, meaning by means of his wealth, redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him for the redemption of the soul is costly. In fact, only the blood of Christ can pay the price, which is a big point. And he, this unbelieving, unethical person, should cease trying, cease trusting in his wealth forever that he, like the psalmist is the point, should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he, this unbelieving, unethical person who worships the God of money, sees that even wise men. So now he's shifting gears and he's saying, "Uh uh-oh, not only does money fail you in the end, but so does education if that's what you worship. So does sophistication. 
So does your social strata, your ability to choose the right wines with the right dinners, to understand fine literature and have really amazing intellectual conversations. By the way, nothing wrong with any of those things, unless it's your God. For if it is, it will profoundly disappoint you. If it is, you're not in an enviable state. He's saying, no, 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 no. I know how things seem. I know how things appear. I know what it looks like. I've seen it with my own eyes. But listen with your ears to this message. This is how things are, and it's not enviable. It's it's pitiable. He says he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought, he says, their their great hope and dream, he says, is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called lands after their own names, trying in some way to create an immortality for themselves, trying to create something that endures beyond their life. They they buy lands and name them after themselves and then they erect monuments to them themselves and all of that stuff. But, but wait a minute, because now we've gotten to the proverb for the first time. He's going to say it again in a second. But he says, their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called lands after their own names, thinking that somehow then they can manufacture a name that will endure. He says, but man in his pomp, meaning in all of his honor, meaning in all of the glory that you and I and anyone else can manufacture in this world for ourselves, man in his pomp will not endure no matter how many lands we capture, no matter how many places we buy, no matter how many things we name after ourselves, no matter how many plaques we get on the wall, no matter how many roasts we have in our honor, no matter how many people go wow and bow down to us, man in his pomp, in all of the glory that he can create for himself in this world, will not endure. He is instead like the beasts that perish. That's the proverb. That's the image. Do you see the image? You don't see the image. Not yet. You don't. I mean, you might think you do, but just wait till I describe it because it's, it's kind of a wow thing when you get it. It's funny, when I was on vacation, I put this message together, and uh, part of the vacation we spent with two of our elders and, and their wives and families, and, and so we were all hanging out, and one morning we were talking about this psalm. Oh, what are you going to preach on when you get back on the 11th? I said, well, I know Psalm 49. So we opened the Bible, and we were all sitting around there talking. And as I'm unpacking this image, and I'm watching the expression on their face, and as we begin to interact about this, I realize this is a pretty stark image. Man in his pomp will not endure. He is instead, here it is, like the beasts that perish. It's the image of a farm animal. It's the image of a cow who spends his entire life grazing in the fields of this transient world, ever seeking to satisfy an appetite that never ends, and all the while unknowingly, unwittingly fattening himself for the butcher. It's pretty stark, isn't it? And the point of the psalmist is, hey, you know, you don't really envy him, do you? You don't. Why? Because you have a grill. You've been to Winn-Dixie, the beef people. You know how the story ends. How did the psalm begin? 
all the inhabitants of this transient world. He is calling us out of the here and the now and to consider the end of it all. Our end and the end of these people who we look at in this life and resent and they anger us and we compete against them and we're all ticked off about it because we've got to do it ethically because we're believers in Jesus and fight against them. And yet we're called to love them. We're called to pity them, but we cannot do it in our wisdom. We need the wisdom of the Lord, and that's what this guy is giving us. He's saying, those folks are like the cow. They're grazing in the fields of this world. What else is there for them to do? Ever seeking to satisfy with the grasses of this transient world, an appetite that is never going to be satisfied by the grasses of this world. It's an appetite that never ends. All the while, unknowingly, unwittingly, fattening themselves for judgment, bringing more judgment and more judgment and more judgment upon themselves. Wow. They're not to be envied. They're to be pitied and, and to be rescued. That's the attitude that we're called to. So he continues this theme in the next part, the bottom half of his riddle. Beginning in verse 13, he says, this is the way of those who are foolish, meaning those who lack this wisdom that he's giving, those who fail to consider the end, those who don't realize that there's a grill coming, those who are ignorant of Winn-Dixie, the beef people, Publix, and the whole shooting match. He says, this is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words who look at them and hold them up and say, wow, I want to be just like that. Remember how we started? I said, you know, it's a little off point, but not quite, not completely. I think oftentimes we look at the people who are living the American dream and it's like, they've arrived. And we say, I want to be just like that. Do you? Is that the goal? What's the goal? What's the mission? What's the vision? What is really the dream? He says, this is the way of those who are foolish. If that's the dream, that's me then, and that's you if that's our dream. And of those who after them approve of their words. As sheep, which parenthetically is another farm animal whose furs and skins are used for clothing and whose meat is used for dinner and occasionally lunch. As sheep, they are appointed, consider their end, he's saying, for Sheol, for the grave. He's saying, look, they're out in the fields today, and I agree with you. It looks enviable. The fields are lush. The fields are green. It never seems to rain over there. It's like awesome. It's amazing. they got this amazing stream that kind of comes through, and it's like, wow. Why can't my life be like that? But that's not where the story ends. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. And then he says this, and it's really pointed. He says, and death shall be their shepherd. And you can bet that he's not going to make them to lie down in green pastures, and he's not going to lead them beside the still or the quiet waters, and he is not going to restore their souls. And you and I know it question is, what will we do with it? 
Well, not so for those who do, in fact, trust not in wealth or in education or in sophistication or, you know, whatever. But, but instead for Jesus, for the, in, in Jesus rather, the psalmist then says this. He says, and the upright, meaning those who trust in Christ as we bring the New Testament into this psalm, shall rule over them in the morning. The morning, I think, is a reference to resurrection. So now he's looking beyond the end of this life and this age and this world, which again, transient. And he's looking to eternal life, eternal age, eternal world, not transient, permanent, forever. And he's saying, look, the roles are reversed there. The unjust rule over the just now, but not there. The upright shall rule over them in the morning, he says, and their form, the form of the unjust in this life, in that life shall be for Sheol to consume. The grave will consume. There will be no resurrection unto life for them, but unto death and unto the shepherd of death. So that they have no habitation in the new heavens and in the new earth. But then he says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, from the death, from the grave. For unlike these folks that were tempted in this life because of our foolishness and lack of perspective to envy or to resent or worse, he will receive me. Why? Because the psalmist is better than all these other people? Because you and I are better or smarter or we're more spiritually attuned or we're… That's ridiculous. We're better looking. I mean, look around. No. No. Because the sovereign Lord has made it so. The only difference between us and anyone else is Jesus. That's it. This man writes a song as he sings, He will receive me. That's awesome. And so he concludes Do not be afraid when a man becomes unethically rich, is the point. When the glory of his house is increased for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. All of his plaques and stuff, it's just going to be some stuff in his kid's attic someday. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And then he says, and though men praise you, when you do well for yourself, is that why you do well for yourself? He, this man, shall go to the generation of his fathers, and they will never see the light. And then he says it again. He says, man in his pomp or in his honor or in all the glory that he can manufacture for himself in this world, yet without understanding, without this insight into the riddle of life, is like the beast that perishes, like the cow that gorges himself today and tomorrow ends up on your plate, and you don't envy him. You don't because you know how it ends. Something, isn't it? And yet the cow, I mean the actual steer who ends up in the butcher and ends up in Winn-Dixie and ends up in Publix maybe if that's where you shop or whatever and then ends up on your grill and then ends up on your plate does in fact serve a purpose in your life, doesn't he? I mean, you eat him. So there is a nourishing element to that. I mean, you know, some of you health buffs might be thinking chicken instead or fish. That's fine, whatever. You know, take a cholesterol pill and have a filet mignon, all right? Just do it. Stuffed baked potato, it's fun. But it serves a purpose in your life, physically. And I think we need to catch that too, because I think there is a sense in which these people who take advantage of us, who challenge us profoundly, serve a purpose in our life too. Not physical, but spiritual. 
And let me illustrate it this way. You know, there are really only three stages to life. There is the first stage of life, which is conception to birth. It's in the womb stage. And what is God doing in the, in the womb stage? He's building and developing into you things that you don't really need in the womb. Isn't that true? He gives you lungs. There's no air to breathe. He gives you eyes. There's nothing to see. He gives you a mouth. There's nothing to say. He gives you ears. Nothing discernible, really, to hear. Hands, nothing to grasp. Feet, nowhere to go. But he's getting you ready for the next stage of life in which there's air to breathe and things to see and things to hear and things to say. Lots of things to say. Places to go, things to grasp, so forth. And what is God then doing in this stage of life, this stage of life we're all in right now, between birth and death? I think he's doing something very similar, except now it's not physical capacities that he's building and developing into us. It's spiritual capacities that he's building and developing into us. He's not shy or quiet about what his goal is. His goal is the image of Christ. He wants all of us to be conformed to the image of Christ, an image that you and I bear imperfectly by the power of his spirit in this world, though hopefully more and more perfectly as we move through this particular stage of life, but which we will bear perfectly forever and ever in the new heavens and in the new earth, the eternal world to come. And you know how he does it? Oftentimes he does it through challenging people like these. Folks who lie and cheat and steal their way to the top and step right on you to get there and seem to have no conscience or problem with it. Those whom we're tempted to envy and to resent and even worse, if we're honest, and yet called to love called to serve, called to reach, called to have mercy and compassion upon. He's conforming us to the image of Christ, and he uses these people, in a sense, to spiritually develop these capacities to nourish us. He wants us to have a heart like Jesus. Well, what is the heart of Jesus? Well, Jesus rides up over the hill. The Mount of Olives overlooking the temple, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. He sees and takes in the city that is about to crucify him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to ridicule him. They're going to falsely accuse him. They're going to falsely try him. They're going to falsely convict him. They are going to torture him profoundly to the point of almost death. And then they're going to nail him to a tree naked outside the city gates where everyone can walk by and see. And they're going to do it for their own advantage. Power, politics, whatever. They got to get rid of this Jesus. And he weeps. I want to ask you this morning, have you ever wept over the lost and dying condition of anyone, much less somebody who really kind of bugs you? Somebody you really don't like? Somebody you'd like to stick it to if you could. And sometimes, maybe you do. The heart of Jesus is the heart of a Savior who, while he's hanging on the cross, enduring these ridicules, having been tortured and dying, looks at the people who nailed him onto it and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're like the beasts of the field just gorging themselves on the grasses of this transient earth, this world that is passing away, trying to satisfy an appetite that just can't be satisfied for more than a few minutes or maybe a few hours, so it seems. 
all the while unknowingly and unwittingly headed for Winn-Dixie. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The point being that Jesus doesn't envy them. Like they get to stay alive and he doesn't. So it's like, oh. Jesus doesn't resent or, or it feels angry toward them. He's not out to get them. But they, like us, are the objects of his mercy. They, like us, are the objects of his love, of his compassion, of his grace, and even of his gospel. And as a result of how he feels, what does he then do? Let me tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't call down the legions of angels, though he said that he could, and then wipe them all out. You know, he doesn't marshal all of his resources and use all of his power to destroy them and be the victor, and he can gain victory over them, and he doesn't do any of that. What he does is he lays down his life in this transient world, knowing that there is a world to come. And if they place their faith and trust in him, if you place your faith and trust in him, you'll enjoy that world with him forever. What a perspective. It's a different kind of wisdom. But sort of the point is, you know, the way that you feel towards someone, and that's what the psalmist is really kind of drilling down on, isn't he? It then dictates, it pours into what you do, how you respond, how you treat, how you love, how you serve, and so forth. You know, our family just returned from vacation. We were gone uh, for a couple of weeks, and we spent a lot of that time, not all of it, but a lot of it uh, in North Carolina. My parents have a house. I've shared this with many of you before, but um, it's in the mountains, and it's on a lake, and it sits up on a hill, and then you kind of come down the hill, and there's like 300 feet of shoreline, and most of it is covered with a big seawall. And the seawall stands. I mean, when you stand on the seawall and you look down, probably about four feet above the water and just under the water is rocks, okay? So at the base of the seawall, it's all rocks, and it's just barely covered with the water. And every single day, my little boy, who's seven years old this year, um, would go fishing. That's his deal. He's a, he thinks he's made to fish. You know, find your thing, do your thing here at Rio. His thing is going to be a fishing ministry of some kind. That's his thing. So every day, he would go fishing. And he had five or six poles, and he had this stuff called jack juice. I don't know if you know what jack juice is, but it's the stuff you spray on your bait. It's like a garlic spray. Here's the deal. Don't get it on your hands. Don't get it on your phone. Don't get it on your face. And stand upwind when you use it. Just a little pointer. You'll thank me later if you ever use it. But he'd spray his bait down with jack juice because he had to use rubber worms because he doesn't like putting the, you know, the, the hook into the squiggly worm. So I said, look, I can't come down every five minutes. You just go. got the rubber worms. They worked. He caught all kinds of fish. He caught bass. He caught trout. He caught uh, carp. Uh, his favorite fish was the crappy because he likes the word. <laughs> he got to say it, and it was awesome. And here's the deal. Everybody knew that he fished in the morning. He's been doing it now for years. Never had an issue. So all the adults kind of know, keep an eye on him. He's down at the water. Well, one morning, uh, everybody left except for me. I was working on this message and my oldest daughter who kind of slept in and he went down and he's fishing. So I'm working on the message and she finally gets up and she's making breakfast. But about every five minutes, I would go kind of out of the basement and I would walk sort of to the edge of the hill and I would look down. I'd see him on the wall. Everything's fine. I'd go back to work. Five minutes later, I'd get up, I'd come out, I'd look, everything's fine, I'd go back to work. Five minutes later, you get the drill, right? And occasionally I'd walk out and I wouldn't see him because there was a tree or something between us. So I'd say his name, TJ, you know, and he'd kind of do one of these deals and I'm here and everything's cool. I don't know how many times I got up, but I know the last time I got up, he was gone. And so I, I looked and 
I didn't see him. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. I wasn't freaking out or anything at that point. I mean, the kid's been fishing off this wall forever. Never had an issue. So I walked down about 10 feet, and I'm looking around to see if maybe, you know, he's behind a tree or something. I call his name, no answer. I think, wow, that's kind of weird. I call his name louder, no answer. So I shout up to Morgan, who's in the kitchen, and I said, is your brother up there with you? She says, no. And I knew he wasn't downstairs. So now in my bare feet, I'm, I'm starting to go down the hill. And I'm shouting at his name, TJ, TJ, nobody answering, no answer. I can't see this kid anywhere. I make it all the way down. I'm screaming his name and praying out loud. Okay? And I'm running on the seawall, looking in the water. I see his pole laying there, so I'm like looking to see if he's there. I literally got down on my hands and knees to look under the dock, yelling. You know, the neighbor, who's a ways away, has come off onto his porch and coming down his grass at this point. And finally, Morgan ran to the other, we've got another kind of house with a garage underneath and found him. He was in the garage playing with one of these razor scooters, trying to open it up or something, you know, then just left his pole on the side of the side of the wall. I mean, I was hyperventilating, I think consciously for the first time in my life. Like I'm thinking I'm going to faint. I'm going to faint. I can't believe it. I feel like I'm going to fall over. Why was I so possessed to find this kid? Because he's my kid and I care. He has a place in my heart. And it's pretty natural to feel that way for your kid. The psalmist is trying to say it ought to be natural to feel that way for everybody. Even these people who take advantage of you every chance they can in light of the perspective that he's giving us. You know what we do instead, and I'm guilty too, we drive right by them. Just like I did a hundred when we were on vacation past farms full of cows. He's coming to us and saying, look, I want to talk about your heart. I want to talk about how you feel because how you feel, bottom line, dictates what you're going to do. And these people need to be rescued. They need to hear this message. So he gives us a pretty stark image. He says, man in his pomp and yet without understanding, without this wisdom is like the beasts that perish. They're headed for publics and they don't even know it. And the point is, you and I do, and it ought not to make us feel good, and it ought not to make us feel smug, and it ought not to make us feel superior. It ought to make us have an urgency about us. It ought to make us share our lives with them. I'll tell you, it ought not to make us marshal all of our power and resources to put up our fists and fight. It ought to cause us, in light of the transient nature of this world and of the eternal nature of the world to come, to lay down our lives and to do whatever it takes to save as many as we can. And it seems to me, you know, as I thought about this, and I had a while to think, um, that part of laying down our lives is living differently from the rest of them. Now ponder that for a minute, okay? Because I think the psalmist sort of assumes something that isn't necessarily true. It certainly isn't true for all of us. It's definitely not always been true for me, and it isn't true completely right now. What he's assuming is that our lives are different from the cows of the field. What he's assuming is that we're chewing a different kind of grass, man, that we have found a different kind of satisfaction. 
that our infinite hunger has been infinitely solved in the infinite Christ and in his beauties and in his majesties. He's assuming that we don't trust in the same things they do and we don't chase after the same things they do. We don't value, at least not in the same way, the same things they do and we are not pursuing the same thing, the same dream that they do and calling everyone who achieves that so-called dream in this transient world a hero. He's assuming that we don't fight for that same dream with the same weapons they do and according to the same ethic. And I think he's wrong in his assumption, by and large. And as a result, the cows of the field don't see us as being any different, and why should they? We claim to be different, and then we saddle up right next to him, chew up the same grass, trying with that same grass to satisfy the same appetites and seemingly headed to the same store. So when we speak of the dinner table of judgment and of the safety and of the rescue that is freely available through Christ, who on the cross bore the dinner table of judgment, if you will, for all who come to him in faith and of the satisfaction that can only be found in him. We lack credibility. We forget that this world is transient and we pursue transient things and elevate them above that which is eternal. And so the psalmist comes to us with a message, and it's not a message just for believers, it's a message for everybody. For all people, for all of the inhabitants of this transient world, low and high, rich and poor, believer and unbeliever alike, and he comes to the unbeliever, and he doesn't come smug, he doesn't come arrogant, he doesn't come with an air of superiority. He comes as one who has been humbled by the grace of God, and he says, hey, you know what? (laughs) You've got to stop trusting in wealth. You have to stop worshiping gods that will fail you when you need them most. And trying to satisfy an appetite that can't be satisfied with the grass of this world. It's an infinite appetite. And it can only be fed by an infinite Jesus. And his message to the rest of us, to those who do believe in Jesus, is that we need to develop a heart like Jesus. We need to gain this perspective of wisdom, and we need to begin to live like people who actually do believe in Jesus and actually do worship Jesus and who understand that this world is transient and that he and that his kingdom and that the souls of all of these people around us are eternal. For then and only then, I think, will we be able to credibly and effectively lead other people out of the barren fields of the shepherd who is death, to the green pastures, to the still waters, and to the restoring of the soul that can be found only through the shepherd who is Christ. So there's Psalm 49 for you. And if it was difficult for you in 30 minutes, I mean, I spent about three weeks in it, so... But what's your heart? How do you feel about these people? And in light of this kind of paradigm-shifting wisdom, how ought you to feel, and then what ought you to do? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your glory, which is great and is eternal. Lord, we thank you for a glory who 
or that is eternal, that exceeds all of the glory of this world. We thank you for a satisfaction that has been made to satisfy the eternal hungers of our hearts. We thank you for a rescue that is found freely through Christ who did all the work and purchased it all for us. And Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who are wise and not foolish, who understand the transient nature of this world and this life, who are able to discern the eternal from the temporal, what's really important from what isn't, and who are willing to live differently than everyone else who lacks this understanding. Being free, God, to give our lives away generously that we might by some means save some people. I pray that you would give us no rest until we become taken with your mission, with your kingdom, and until we become people who share the life of Christ with other people. We pray these things for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.